This podcast is dedicated to the proposition that every Christian should be a constant and devoted reader of the Bible, and that the primary business of the church and its ministry is to lead, foster, and encourage people in this life-changing habit. Okay, guys, uh, so we've been reading the book of Ephesians now. should have read it five times by now. Six chapters, so about 30 chapters this week, and Ephesians is one of the other Pauline epistles, and a lot of good stuff, obviously, in there. So let's just jump right in. If anything has stood out to you as you've been reading through this book, anything that maybe God's been showing you, anything that stood out to you, that any insights that maybe you've gotten been reading this. I know Dave is going to one-up me when I say this, but I, I never tried to read one-up. Well, I tried to read the beginning of Ephesians slowly. Excellent. And I realized that the same way Galatians started, how Apostle Paul wasn't appointed by any group, but by Jesus Christ himself, is the same entry that Ephesians had. So it's setting the stage again. He was chosen by the will of God to be an apostle of Jesus Christ. May I not try to one-up you, but just add on to what you're saying? Thank you. <laughs> I'm, I'm not trying to one-up you, but I, I don't know. The dude mentioned last week that I like to pick the introduction apart. I felt, well, I have to do this then each time. That it, <laughs> It's, we, we read over that introduction, but there is so much in it. Again, I've done this in the past as a student of this, a little bit different than what we're doing here. So forgive me on that part, but check this out, what Lenny just said. Just in the first two verses, this letter from Paul, chosen by the will of God, my book says. Chosen by the will of God. What does that say? You know what it says to me about what we've been talking about, John? You mention it all the time. God's sovereignty and omnipotence. God was the driving force in Paul's life, just as he should be the driving force in our life. That's what that says to me. Chosen by the will of God, not by anybody else. It's not the first time he says this, but that's what's important about the introduction. Let's go further. He says, I am writing to God's holy people in Ephesus who are faithful followers of Jesus Christ. Faithful. Now, Paul doesn't just use words frivolously, and that's why faithful is very important. To me, anyway. Of course, Paul opposed Judaism. And that was a religion to him of human attainment, if you will. And Paul was preaching Christianity, which is a religion of divine provision. God will provide for you. Salvation is gotten by faith in God. So when we read that word faithful, it's very important. He's saying faithful followers. That adjective is very important. And then one more thing, again, adding out of what Lenny said. May God our Father, in verse 2, my book says, the Lord Jesus Christ give you grace and peace. Notice that grace comes first. Paul always does that. Grace is the work of the Father, our Father God, by which salvation from sin comes. And peace, I don't know, what do you think peace is? For me, it's, it's in my heart. It's a condition in my heart that I've received grace first, and it's done its work. If it hasn't, then I do not have peace. I don't think we can have peace without grace having done its work. That's how I scrutinize the introduction here for Paul. It's so important. He's not just right. He is saying a lot in here. Okay, Lenny, me and you just took the yeah, paradigm. battle, Lenny. The, the, the peace is almost like, I was going to say, like almost a side effect of the grace. Exactly, Ben. Exactly. Yep. That's why it's well, like, yeah, for, for me. Me, whenever I see grace and peace, I always think of grace as the gift of salvation, like mm -hmm. through the works of Jesus on the cross and atonement. And you know, if you follow the theology of Judaism into the life and times of Jesus and his followers, 
That's like that real narrow thread of truth. Like, you know, we say that he opposed Judaism, right? Because he looked at it and like how it had sort of missed the mark on listening to Daniel and Isaiah and, you know, the coming Christ and all these things, right? So it's almost like to me, Paul is this person who knew the truth and was trying to give people the truth. That strikes a chord with me because, you know, when you say grace and peace, I always think of peace as in put on the full armor of God. It's the gospel of peace. So it's like the good news of victory with, through Jesus Christ is no matter if the world's on fire, no matter if you're having relationship problems, it doesn't matter if it's your finances. When you think back and you put Jesus first, when you make him the focus, that's the peace that it brings you. So people will be like, how could you be so calm right now? I'll irritate them with how calm I'll be about a situation. Do you understand though? I know you've heard this message, but do you actually comprehend what, what Jesus did on that cross when he died, fulfilling that prophecy? Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? So that for me, that's how peace is. And the grace is just for us, what Jesus did on that cross. We talk about it and picking apart scripture, but it's different to everybody. And I think that's the way the Holy Spirit works in our lives is the way, you know, Ben and David read it is it's going to strike them one way and it's going to resonate with me a different way. But I always, as I'm reading the scriptures, everything is like bouncing off a of previous scripture or a later scripture. Well, you know, one thing for clarification, I don't think that Paul was necessarily opposed to Judaism per se, but it was kind of like in baseball, whereas like Judaism had the bases loaded, but nobody up to bat. They got all the pieces in play, but nobody's hitting the home run to bring everything home. And Jesus became the fulfillment of that. So that's where Peter's mission was really as the apostle to the Jews. And he was helping to hit that grand slam, so to speak, whereas Paul was going out to Gentiles who really, in many cases, had no basis for it, but then often would discover that the, some of the roots of the Christian faith were in Judaism, so then they would gravitate towards that and almost like try to reverse engineer some of these things. And he's just said, you know, that, that's not the point of this. Jesus hit the home run. That, that's where grace is. Grace is God's infinite riches that he provides to us, even though we have no merit for them at all. And he's providing that to us. But they were trying to go back and generate these works that were being done for centuries previously, but now we're really outdated once Jesus came up the bat. It's really amazing to me that without the prophets that God chose before, like it says in Ephesians, in him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, which is Ephesians 1, 11. Think about that. God, Moses, Noah, pick somebody from scripture who challenged uh, Israelite kings or pharaohs or whatever the case may be, the rulers of the world, people that were men of God. Without those major or minor prophets that we would never know the character of God. We would never know about uh, you know, how to worship, what atonement was. So each of them played this integral part, like they were a cog in this bigger tapestry, this bigger machine that was going to lead up to God giving us mercy through grace, giving us Jesus Christ. You can go and find a Gentile in Paul's time and teach them the way, teach them what Christianity is, who Christ is, what he did for them. And it's great. All the love is great, but it's not going to make a whole lot of sense unless you go back and sort of understand what everybody else was talking about for centuries or thousands of years waiting for this person to come. You can't really have Christianity without the Old Testament, so to speak. You can just go by beautiful, blind, like childlike faith for sure. But if you really want to dive in, into the, the meat and potatoes of theology, of understanding why Jesus is who he said he was, or another said he was, that's that's all the Old Testament, you know? Yeah. Well, again, you know, it's he, he was the fulfillment of it. You can't have forgiveness without the establishment of law. In essence, what it was, I mean, the Old Testament, although there's lots in there that set it up in and of itself has no salvation and that's where jesus comes through and then he provides kind of the completion 
to what was set up there. Any other thoughts? Anything else stand out? Go back to nine. God has now revealed to us his mysterious will regarding Christ, which is to fulfill his own good plan. And that plan is at the right time, he will bring everything together under the authority of Christ, everything in heaven and on earth. Furthermore, because we are reunited with Christ, we will receive the inheritance of God, which chose us in advance and makes everything work out according to his plan. And that ties back into there is no way through the Father except that verse brings a lot of comfort too. That goes back to what Johnny's saying. And I was like, this COVID, how, how are you so calm? That verse just speaks volumes. I think, you know what? I'm going to be okay because I've got on my side. Like Jesus was asleep in the boat, right? During the storm. Jesus had that peace. He, he knew he had real faith. Continuing on verse 12 through 14, I guess. God's purpose was that we Jews who were first to trust in God would bring praise and glory to God. And I just thought that this whole section was interesting because he's really defining for his readers what God's purpose is. It says that his purpose is that we would bring praise and glory to God. It goes on, and now you Gentiles have also heard the truth, the good news that God saved you. When you believe Christ, he identified you as his own by giving you the Holy Spirit, which he promised long ago. The Spirit is God's guarantee. He will give us the inheritance he promised, and then he purchased us to be his own people. He did this so that we could praise and glorify God. And just that that little line there, that we would praise and glorify God, I just began to look introspectively and say, does my life praise and glorify God, right? I mean, because that's what he's saying. That's our purpose, is to praise and glorify God. Am I praising God? Am I glorifying God? Whether this be you know, with singing praises or speaking praises, is my life glorifying to God when somebody looks at my life? Do they say, wow, his life really glorifies God, or does my life glorify myself and praise myself? That's the trend that we see if we look around in the world today, is that people praise and glorify themselves. Maybe they praise or glorify an idol of some form. But here, Paul is being very clear that our purpose is to praise and glorify God, that all of our lives are to be reflections of him, and that we are to be pointing the way to him. So it started with the Jews, that that was their purpose, and then now it's also to the Gentiles who received the Holy Spirit as well, that our life be simply spent praising and glorifying God. Not ourselves, not our career, not anything else, but that we're glorifying God. Yeah, and if we continue down, John had brought it up just before all of you joined us. I'm not going to read it all, but 15 through 23 that's a prayer that Paul is saying. I'm so impressed by that. It. It's just, I'm always impressed by his writing. It's so beautiful. Um, if, if I pick it up in 17, a couple of verses, asking God, the glorious Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, to give you spiritual wisdom. We learned about that in Proverbs, about becoming people of good judgment, unstriving toward that. Give me that wisdom and insight so that you might grow your knowledge of God, which is what we're all here for, which is what we're doing every day. And then some beautiful imagery again from Paul. I pray that your hearts flooded with light so that you can understand the confident hope he has given to those who he called his holy people who are his rich and glorious inheritance. It's just so beautiful in reading this, especially if you read 17 and 19, and I focused on those, I'm thinking Paul here in Ephesians, he is insisting, he's declaring the sufficiency of spiritual resources that are available to believers. That's all we need is, is that. And that goes back to, of course, you know, I, I thought he was getting down a little bit on Judaism, and I took what you said, Judas, so you know, not to knock Judaism because they're maybe got the bases loaded and they just never were able to hit that home run. 
But going back to what Paul is saying, that all we need is, you know, we've got all the spiritual resources. They're there for us, and that should be sufficient for us. We just have to take it. They're available to believers like us. And 17 to 19 does that. This is such a beautiful prayer here. And he's saying this is what he prays for the Ephesians all the time. Just unbelievable. I think for me, in order to realize what Paul is saying here, for me, the sufficiency of spiritual resources available to believers is that I need to be a believer. I need to be you know, firm in that belief. In other words, uh, you know, like I need is you know, greater insight into God's blessing and promise uh, because it's there. John said it. You say it too. It, it's there. I mean, he's done all this for us already. We just got to take it. It's right there. We don't have to do anything to justify it. I like verse 16. I have not stopped thanking God for you. I pray for you constantly. If any greeting card company is looking for a good greeting card, <laughs> it's on the front of the card. That's because that's beautiful. Oh, no, I'm just going to add a little to what to Ephesians 1, even 20. I always pray this, that the same mighty power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead is seated to him in the place of honor of God's right hand in heavenly realm. That mighty power that I try to that I try to pray with all the time. And and sometimes I might fail. Sometimes I have doubt because I'm, I'm human. But like that's the best reminder we can have, knowing we can operate in. It's a beautiful thing once we really start to tap into it. Ephesians 2, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. As I was reading this, this was making me think about after I was saved, it made me think back to my old life where you're being transformed through grace, through this gift of salvation that God has given you. And you begin to realize that your old self is dead. It's dead and gone. You're made a new creation in Christ. It's not even a fresh start. It's like being born again. And hence, you know, the term born again. You're being born. You're fresh. You're brand new. The parts that really stood out to me in this was we used to be sinners and some of us still are sinners. Uh, none of us are blameless is what scripture tells us, right? Think about that. You're either following Jesus or you're not following Jesus. If you're not following Jesus, this is basically saying you're following the world and or the ruler of the kingdom of the air which if you know your scripture, you know that that is the Satan or that's the devil. By following the world, you're essentially following the devil. So you either pick, you're either a lover of the world, you're a lover of yourself, lover of the devil, or you're a lover of God. You're a lover of Jesus, a follower of Jesus. Now at work in those who are disobedient. You can be disobedient without realizing you're being disobedient, but by pursuing scripture, by pursuing God, the word of God and God himself and Jesus, these things are revealed to you. It's revealed to you how you've been disobedient. And that's what, to me, is what is striking the chord is that sanctification that you hear about in, in theology. As you're discovering and growing your relationship with Jesus, you're being informed through the word. Oh my gosh, I've been doing that for years and now I've been born again. And that's like skin being shed off like an old sunburn. The scales are falling off now. The more I'm reading Ephesians is just, so you said, the light is flooding my heart. That light is turning to it like liquid gold. This is flooding my heart. It's going through all of my veins, just cleansing my spirit. It's funny that you bring this up because yesterday I actually almost had to like remind myself of like of how much I have changed. I like I still sit like the, the last day I didn't sin was January seventeenth, nineteen eighty. I was born on the eighth. But like you just remind like how far you've come and how you don't want to go back there. And it just every once in a while like I had to remind myself of that because like I started thinking like well like just you start bringing yourself down and you got to remember like well yeah but you're not that bad. You used to be. You're not there anymore. You know, for me, Ben, it's the opposite. The closer I get to God, the more I realize how bad I am. It's the opposite. Like, I feel like I'm more on the hook. I feel more convicted that, you know, so God works in different ways, right? Like if we continue on in Ephesians 2 and we get to the next verse, which is 3, all of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh 
and following its desires through thoughts. I don't know about you guys, but that's exactly where my sin starts. It starts with my thoughts. Something will come across in my mind. Maybe it'll be gossip. Who knows what it'll be? You know, it could be anything. It could be, you know, want to go back to drinking or anything like that. But if I can immediately take my thought and make my thought about Christ, about Jesus, about God, about the Holy Spirit, about our Bible study, all of a sudden, I'm not thinking about that sin anymore. And that is how in my life, the Holy Spirit and God is like cleansing me. When I pray, every time that I pray, I pray to draw all the impurity in my life. God is doing it. It's actually happening. So you don't have to believe me. You really don't. But I'm not going to not tell you about it because it's amazing. When people say God has a transformative power, try it. As insulting as that may be to God, if you won't know unless you open up a Bible and you read scripture, and many people will read the Bible. You know, I'm sure thousands, if not millions of people have read the Bible and not been changed. But that's because once they were presented with the information, they chose to not want to believe. They chose to not want to understand it. They said, you know what? I'm good on my own. God has given them the free will to do that. But in my life, when I read this information, it is profound. It is prolific. It is a revelation. Just like how it says, Paul's praying for revelation for these people. I'm accepting the revelation because it's right here. The revelation of Jesus, it is so real. Mm. Open your Bible, read. Let God have his way with you. Let Jesus have his way with the Holy Spirit. Transform your life. You were talking about, it lets you know like what bad things you have. Like Remember when we were doing Galatians and we were talking about in Galatians 5, before the fruits of the Spirit, they talk about all the bad stuff. And I read through it and I went and said, I've done every single one. Yeah, well, yeah, it's true. <laughs> but it's not all gloom and doom, though. It's not all you're a follower of the world and of Satan and stuff like that. Because when you go on to 4, it says, but because of his great love for us. Yeah. God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions. That's so huge. It's huge because what does it mean to be rich? It means you have an abundance of, you have more than enough. Usually when you have an abundance of something, it's enough for everybody around you. So what this is saying is like, don't overlook when it says God, who is rich in mercy. If you're merciful to people, it will be shown back to you with that same measure. Be quick to forgive people, be quick to help the poor, be quick to take up arms for justice, for the widow, for the orphan. This is like an instruction book. This is like an instruction book for how to human, how to be a human. It, it is by grace you have been saved. God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ in order that in the coming ages, he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Jesus Christ. God wants to be kind to us. God doesn't want to scold us. He doesn't want to smite us. He doesn't want to throw us into a lake of fire. He wants us to have redemption. All throughout this, the interesting thing is showing that we are, or we were dead in our sins. And the important aspect of this is that, and we see this throughout scripture, that Jesus died for us while we were sinners. And so often we get this, idea that somehow we need to clean up our act and come to God, that you need to get all your problems worked out. And I've talked to people for years saying, well, you know, I can't go to church or I can't do this or that because of who I am and the things I've done. And I've had people literally afraid to walk into a church because they're afraid that God is going to strike them with lightning when they enter, <laughs> failing to realize the fact that God is full of mercy and he's full of grace. And it says here that even though we were dead in our sins, he gave us life. Because of what Jesus has done, God is giving us that free life. Verse 6, again, this is just a different translation. For he raised us from the dead along with Christ and seated us with him in heavenly realms because we were Christ Jesus. And just tying in with 
Christ, accepting him, accepting his free gifts of mercy and grace, how he is the giver of all life. And even take this on a purely physical level, I walk and I look around and creation just blows my mind that you look around and something that man cannot create is life. Like we cannot create anything that has life, really. And look around and the world is literally bursting forth with life. You can pull out a microscope and you can see life. You can look at the macro level and you can see life. You see trees that are bursting forth, growing solar panels on every single branch. You can see insects and all kinds of animals that are all life. And Christ is saying to us, I want to give you life. He's given us one form of life, the ability to breathe. But you say that's not really even life that I want to give you. I want to give you a life that's even deeper than that. I want to give you a spiritual life. I want to take your dead heart and give it life again so that you can live with the fullness of knowing who Jesus is. I remember there was a picture I saw once where they showed an x-ray of someone's lungs and then they showed the branches of a tree and they looked so similar to each other. And this is before I started coming to church and stuff and I'm like, maybe there is something to this. This makes too much sense to me. Exactly. If it's bigger than all that, you know, you were saying how, you know, you've met people as a pastor that are like, I can't come to church. You know, I'm just who I am, you know, what I've done. That's not the right place for me. Like they're going to wreck it or something. I'm that person. That's who church is for. It's like going to the gym, the bodybuilder, go home, dude, you're done. Like <laughs> let somebody who's out of sheath come in here and use these machines. Church is there to introduce you to who Jesus is so that you can be redeemed through him. You walk into that building and if there's good biblical theology there, guess what? If you're sitting down in a chair or the pew or the aisle or you're standing, however you're doing it, you know, you might be new. You might think that, you know, the worship songs are weird or they're kind of willy nilly or, or silly or something like that. But if you hear the message, if you hear God breathes scripture, it does something to you where all of a sudden, the more you come back and you might just get a little bit at first, but then you come back and you get a little bit more and it starts with a little spoonful. And the next thing you know, you're like, pass me the gravy bowl. I'm trying to drink the whole punch bowl. You know what I mean? Yeah. And you get to that point where you have to share the gospel. You have to share that message to other people because you have been saved by it. I don't know if it's just that evangelism is a big deal to me or what, you know, God's plan is a big deal to me. Or if it's that I just, I, I walk around and I see people and they all look like zombies to me, spiritual zombies. They're dead, but they don't even realize they're dead. They don't even realize that they're dead. And they don't even realize that God made them with a purpose. And so much to the fact that sometimes I say that to some people and they're just like glossed over. Like, it's like I'm speaking alien to them, you know? But other people I share with, and you see they're on the edge of their seat and they're like, I feel the calling. Like, I just had a new person come in to well, I'm the Thrive Small Group. It was divine. You know, the Holy Spirit told me, he's like, you know, don't be late. Make sure you're there right at two. And sure enough, I get in there, there's a brand new person. God basically gave me a download. He was like, help this girl with her theology because she hears me calling her, but there's false prophets basically. So I did. I just basically, and I'm doing it in a loving, kind, gentle way, right? But I would never know to do that. I would never know that I had a divine appointment if it wasn't for Thrive, if it wasn't for opening you guys, you know, reintroducing me to the Bible and scripture and everything else. When you're reading Ephesians, this is exactly what they're talking about. This is the heart of Christianity here. It's Paul, who was formerly a Jew, Saul of Tarsus, who persecuted Christians, who admits that he was a, the worst kind of sinner against God, being spoken to and experiencing Christ first and foremost, and then just being on fire for it and just going out and doing the will of the Father. Ben, Judah, Dave, Josh, Lenny, we're all called to do that. We're all Saul of Tarsus. When I read this, I just look at your faces and I'm thinking, we're Paul. 
am I glorifying God? If people look at our lives, do they see Christ? Do they see God? Ask yourself that. Are you being disobedient? Are you serving the world or the devil? Or are you following Christ? Just think about that, Ben. You say like, you think about your old self. I think about my old self too sometimes. It's easy to go back to that lifestyle. But if we put God first, everything else falls into place. I don't want to simplify it, but these chapters, man, they just sing to me. Because of the grace that God shows, I can't tell you how many times while Judah's preaching or I'm singing where I just begin to cry because I realize how much of a sinner I am or used to be and what God has forgiven me from and brought me through. That's that grace that you keep, that we keep just trying to like hone in on. I remember three things from my first time walking into Thrive. And one of those things was something that Lenny said. Lenny went and mentioned that churches were like hospitals for sinners to come. Instead of getting physically repaired, you're getting spiritually repaired. You come here to get healed. We're not here to punish you. There's just one more part I wanted to talk about Ephesians. I don't mean to, you know, take up all the airtime, but it's just, I think you can't mention Ephesians 2 without bringing this up. And it says, for it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. Like underline that, this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. God's plan, not our plan. His will be done, not our will be done. So I think, you know, theologically, you can't talk about two without bringing that up, that nobody can boast. You're not contributing to anything. I think Dave said it last week. You know, you're not adding to the recipe. God, it's perfect. There's nothing mm -hmm. you can add. You're not going to add extra chocolate chips or, or sprinkles or, or cherries or whipped cream. None, none of that. God made it perfect from the beginning. He has his own plan. So mm -hmm. we're not saved by what we do. We're saved through what Jesus did. Mm -hmm. You said a moment ago you didn't want to oversimplify it, but the reality of it is it's simple. And I think generally we fall into the opposite trap of overcomplicating it. Well, that's what Galatians was about with learning about the laws. Exactly. Right. And then we tend to overcomplicate things and we tend to have Jesus and right? Jesus and my good works or Jesus and how I act and what I say and how I dress and what I listen to and whatever else. And it's just, you say, no, you can't take credit for any of it. You can't take credit for it. It's not because you're good. It's not because of anything. You can't take credit for it. Otherwise, boast about it. Yeah. It's Jesus and it's because of Jesus. Right. We don't change ourselves. That's been huge reading Ephesians is I don't change me. God changes me. All I have to do is seek him and I'll find him. If I knock, he's going to open the door. If I ask for him, I will receive him. It says it right there in Matthew chapter seven, you know, seek and you'll find. Ask and it'll be given. Knock and the door will be open. I think it even says in chapter seven of Matthew, it says, you who are evildoers, you who are, who are wrought with iniquity, if you'll even give your children good gifts. You're not going to give them a snake when he asks for a fish. He says, who of you when they ask for bread is going to give them a rock? You're actually not God. You're actually not good. You may think you're good, but believe me, you're not. So imagine what God would give to you. And that's what we're seeing here in Ephesians is Paul telling the Ephesians. It's my understanding too, Ephesus was a worship capital. It was a very spiritual kind of town or city, historically speaking. It was one of the worship centers, which I thought was really interesting that he's there in the heart of people that are open-minded to the unseen, the supernatural. It's no surprise to me that it became one of the larger centers of people that became the way or Christians. It's true, John. It was in... Just a quick comment on that, that's a tribute to Paul's teaching that he could overcome all the other religions and faiths they have there. We heard about the problem he had with Demetrius, the silversmith who was selling little versions of uh, Diana's temple and Diana herself, the god Artemis, if you will, 
and his preaching was just incredible. Of course, he did more than preach there. He was, I believe he was a pastor there for a few years too, took time out from his missionary work. I wanted to just go down further in chapter two, where Paul is talking again about starting at verse 11. If you read 11 to 22, I'm just going to focus on 15. My book says he did this getting Jews and Gentiles together is what Paul's talking about. He did this by ending the system of law with his commandments, its regulations. He made peace between the Jews and Gentiles. He, meaning God, did this, Jesus did it, by creating in himself one new people from two groups. So, you know, I started thinking about this. This is a new people. It isn't, he didn't take Jews and Gentiles and say, okay, you know, I'm going to graft a little from you and a little from you Gentiles. No, no, he made a completely new people so it's one. We're all one. It's not maybe took two races, if you will, Gentiles and Jews, but it's just an entirely new humanity. And I love the way he puts that there, because for me, in, in some of the things in my life where I've seen exclusion or someplace has not been inclusive of everybody, and I've been on that receiving end too, Paul is saying that we're all included. Everybody's included. As a matter of fact, in 16, I can read one more verse, together as one body. One body, Christ reconciled both groups to God. That covers everybody by means of his death on the cross and our hostility toward each other was put to death. In other words, verse 16 to me saying, we as believers, we have access to the power of the resurrection. That's, that's what 16 says to me. For believers, we have power. We have access to that power of the resurrection. For he himself is our peace who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier. This is my NIV translation, by the way. The two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing walls of hostility by setting aside in his flesh the law and its commands and regulations. I grow grapevine on my property here. And, you know, it makes me think of Jesus is one of his titles is the Prince of Peace. Well, if there's a barrier, if there's division, and he takes down that wall and he unites two things with that peace with the peace of the gospel, the good news of victory against death and sin by being obedient to the will of the Father. It's like me and my grapevines. I look at my grapevines at the beginning of the season. They're growing all wild and out of control. Anywhere they can get sun and an exchange of, of air and, and nutriment from the soil, they just grow wild and frivolous all over the place. But when I look at the grapevines, I see the best possible grapevines. I see that if I train them and I prune them in my imagination and I go and I do that in reality, I know how fruitful the pruning will make the rest of the vines in the direction in which I can curate and tailor them to grow in. I feel like this is what Jesus is doing. He's taking the Gentiles and he's taking the Jews, the Israelites, and he's looking at them and they're just doing their own thing. They're just going all willy-nilly. And he says, what I'm going to do is I'm going to snip here and I'm going to remove this and I'm going to show you how good you can actually be, how many more seeds you can drop when your grapes hit the ground, how much more fruit you can bear. The imagery of Paul, I mean, he was a poet. You know, he was absolutely like, or maybe it's just God. God is the poet, the grand poet. Or he's definitely was speaking through Paul. John, you're exactly right. And you guys have heard me say this before from a literary standpoint, being an English major and studying literature for so long in college. This is so beautifully written, even beautifully translated. And we can't underestimate, I, I try not to underestimate the power of Paul, his gift of communication and all the skills that he has. When we remember as you alluded to before, John B., this was, uh, Ephesus was a major city. It was a seat of a lot of different religions there. Again, the, one of the main ones being devotion to the goddess Artemis. I was fortunate enough to visit Ephesus some few years back, and 
the temple, just even the remains still of the Temple of Artemis, it's incredible. And then to think of how big it was before it you know, had deteriorated over the years, it's just incredible. And to walk where Paul had spoke there, where he had defended himself against the, the other silversmiths that Demetrius was trying to organize into a little revolt against him. We have to remember how powerful these words were to be able to convince so many people into procreate Christianity from Ephesus on to other parts of the world at the time. It's funny because you could have the biggest temple in the world. You could have the Tower of Babel. You could have the biggest yeah. temple to Diana. It's nothing compared to what God can do. No. Yes, exactly. You know, with all of this, I think that in many ways, this is a timely discussion because in our country, mm. our world, tensions run high on a number of things, whether it be the race riots and protests that are happening throughout the country and throughout the world. The politicism that is out there running rampant, which is looking down and judging other people from different political parties. There's all kinds of ways to hate people, right? Because I'm in one group and you're in another group. And, and I think Paul is talking here, and I like what he's saying, in the sense that he's not just saying, let's merge everybody together and we're just going to be say, inclusive so much as he's literally saying that God is creating a new people, a new group. Does it matter what you've come from? Now you're in a new group. And, and the way I've always looked at this personally is that when you become a part of this new group, the body of Christ, you leave your old identity at the door. It doesn't mean that we could change the color of our skin or our upbringing or our political views necessarily but that this new group, this new gathering, this new family supersedes any other identity that you may have had previously. And we read in Galatians, and he talks even more about this in Galatians 3.20, he says, there is no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. He's saying the same thing here to the Ephesians, he made peace between the Jews and the Gentiles by creating himself one new people from the two groups together as one body. Christ reconciled them to God by means of his death on the cross. And so whatever we may identify ourselves with, all of that is now superseded by being in the family of God. And this is why I talk a lot about these topics of, say, politics, for example, as members of our country that we live in, we have a right and we have a freedom to help to select people who we think should be in office. We have a ability to have a voice on laws and things like that. We have an ability to stand for what is right. We also have different races and genders that we all are reflective of, but all of that to me is secondary and not even like a close second. This is like a distant second. Everything else should be framed in the fact that I'm part of God's family. And that is first and foremost who I am, who I identify as, right? Like I identify as a child of God before I identify as anything else in the world. As I, before I identify as a pastor or a business owner or a father, a father or a race or a political party or lack of a political party or whatever else, all of that is like a distant, distant, distant second to my first primary race, if you will, my first and primary family, which is being a member of the body of Christ. 
Well, when I told you I went to that job interview and he asked me what my nationality was, and I went like American, and he's like, no, 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 me like your parents, where are they from? What is what does that have to do with anything? It's still legal. But I was at a, a consulate, so I think with their law, it was perfectly fine. It's sad what has become or what has come to our country, or what our country has come to, based on what you're saying, Judah, you know, what's the most important thing, you know, this is uh, the, the family that we belong to first, and everything else is a far, far distant second. Our country was called a melting pot at one time, and we had so many different races and so many different types of people here of all origins of ethnicities of color and we got along pretty good i don't know what happened i don't know if it was the last 10 years maybe it was brewing underneath i don't know i'm not a political scientist i do know that something happened and we are so at odds with each other down to splitting here it's not just democrats or republicans or blacks and whites or rich and poor we quibble with each other over every little thing and it is terrible that our country is being torn apart by that and i'm thinking of that as you're talking about what should be our priority jesus divide he says it himself he says i didn't come to bring peace i came to bring the sword to divide and then the, the subsequent verses are mother-in-law against daughter-in-law you know father against son mother against daughter so what he's saying is is you either choose truth you either choose love you either choose me the way no one comes to the father but through me you either choose life eternal life or you can choose your own path but it's by your own will that you choose to walk away from truth that you reject truth that you reject this new way if you put god first if i put god first think about that that means that i'm obeying the commands of jesus which he says galatians 5 14 love one another he says it again and whereas is, is it somewhere else in matthew where he said love god as he's loved you and then love one another over and over again we see that in the bible the theme of the bible is if you are a child of god if you are a follower of jesus then you are loving other people and just like judah posted today on social media i reposted that because it was beautiful he just says love one another yeah and love one another and if you do that you sum up all the laws of the past all biblical laws so if you really want to say oh i read the bible or the torah or whatever iteration of it that it is. I'm in the, the online courses with Harvard's EDX program for a certificate for studying Christianity through its scriptures. You know, I'm reading Ethiopian theology, which is heretical, so to speak, in a lot of places, but it doesn't matter because if, you're, if you do take Christ as who he said he was, which they do, everything else should fall into place. Everything else should fall into place by just loving one another. It doesn't matter if it's Republican, Democrat, liberal. It doesn't matter if it's black, white, Asian. I mean, pick any division. The minute you choose God, all that other stuff melts away. All of it melts away. There is no supremacy of any kind. It's absolutely crazy to me because like you said, you know, I said, I don't want to oversimplify it. And then Judah corrected me. He goes, it is simple. It really is simple. But are you willing to accept that simple way, the way Christianity? That's the key. If you can imagine like a wheel where you have spokes, they're all moving towards the hub. And if you imagine the hub being Christ and you have on say, I'll just use politics for a moment. You've got on one side of the wheel, the spoke of say being a Democrat, the other side of the wheel, the spoke of being a Republican. We're both going the same direction if we're moving towards the hub, mm. right? It doesn't matter where you are on that wheel. Mm. If you're moving- Converges. Right, if we're moving towards it, towards not uniformity in our own belief system, as far as politics, whatever else, but the closer we move to Christ, then the more Christ-like we become, and then ultimately the more like each other and the more accepting of each other we can become as well because we're becoming more like Christ. And I think sometimes it's easy for us to judge someone that's on the other side of the wheel 
and say, well, you're on the other side of the wheel so like, far and so far away. And I get it. Like, I get why we do that. Maybe someone's views you feel are diametrically opposed to your own view. But if we are moving closer to the hub, granted, let's be real. Some people are moving further away from the hub on all sides of this, right? But if we're moving closer towards the hub, that means that we're family. That means that we have more in common that we're moving away from our fringes and we're moving more towards Jesus being the center of our life. This is a brilliant illustration, Judah. And I think it's worth investing in someone to make a computer animation or really because the center of the spokes being right there where the axle is, right where the hub is, that explains it perfectly. You start off and everyone can conceptualize a bike tire or a wheel that you said on one end is that. And then the closer you get to Jesus, the closer you are to one another, that yeah. one body, a bride of Christ. And what's funny is you even went for a step further and you said paradoxically, on the outside, there are people that are growing away from Christ. So that's what scares me in this world. When someone is so far away from other people, you want to talk about division. You want to talk about racism. You want to talk about political ideologies. That's where you get fascism. That's where you get communism. That's where you get national socialism and scary things like that. You think about what happened in Cambodia, the killing fields, Pol Pot. You think about what happened in Rwanda and Africa. You think about what happened in, even in, in our century, the 80s, Tiananmen Square massacre in China. And it's because Guess what? You can't get anywhere near God. That's our political policy. You can't even believe. And if yeah. you get caught believing, persecution. You know, we got it easy over here in America. We really do. And, and you know, taking that analogy, I mean, kind of where you were going, the closer we come to the hub, the closer we come to each other. The reverse is true. The more we cling to the fringes, the more separate we become from each other as well. And we get further away, further away from God, further away from each other. And then all this rage, animosity, jealousy, judgmentalism begins to raise its ugly head. You know, politics does have a place in biblical truth because imagine if we weren't from China, we were all Chinese, we would eventually be brought to the point where we wouldn't even be able to lawfully follow Jesus or read scripture. They'd be burning Bibles, so to speak. So imagine being a Christian in China right now. But on the other hand, you could also argue that if you believe in God, that he's going to take care of you, he's going to provide, and you don't have to worry about any of that. If you do become a martyr, it was part of God's plan. You, you know, it's interesting because I, I've been to a communist country before, and being there again, it's like you look at the different spokes of things, and you meet people that are followers of Christ, and the unity that we have immediately is a bonding factor. We've all come to the hub together, and there's immediately that bonding factor. People that have, you've never met before, people that have a different walk of life that are brought up in a different culture, different civilization, there is that unifying force. Uh, yeah, I think that's something that we definitely need to probably probe and, and dig into, you know, a little bit more. So anyhow, uh, let's go ahead and wrap up for today. I think we've successfully got through about a chapter and a half of uh, <laughs> this book here. And um, I think it's, it's worth continuing in Ephesians. There's so much in here that I think... We did a chapter and a half, but honestly, in many ways, I feel like we skipped over it. Um, I think there's a lot that we still, uh, still kind of left behind as we, uh, as we discuss it. So, so let's continue on reading the book of Ephesians. We'll read it another five times this week and really just seeking God's direction and guidance. And I think on a personal level, asking God, what do you want me to learn from this? How do you want me to change, to shift, to, to be more like Christ? How do we, as followers of Christ, get more closer to that hub, so to speak, so that we can be that unifying factor in this rather than in the dividing factors. Let's jump in with that a little bit more, and then we'll pick up next week. Well, we hope that you enjoyed our discussion today on the Thriving in the Word podcast. We invite you to leave a 
rating or a review wherever you're listening to this podcast. Also consider sharing it on social media. We can't wait to be back together with you at the Thriving in the Word podcast.